Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome back to another episode of the How I Quit Alcohol podcast. For first-time listeners, please be aware that not all of the conversations within this podcast are suitable for children. I'd also like to add a trigger warning that sometimes the conversations can get a little heavy. We may talk about things like sexual abuse, domestic violence, drug use and alcohol use. And if you feel that that may trigger you, please do not tune in. Also, I'd like to add, if you are a heavy daily drinker, please seek the help of a medical practitioner before quitting alcohol. This podcast comes to you from beautiful Bunjalung country. Please kick back and enjoy. Grab yourself your favorite alcohol-free bevy. And if you haven't already, do a gal a favor. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Monday Distillery, who makes sophisticated elk-free drinks that still have all the taste of a good time. G&T without the tears, whiskey without the wobbles, and other delicious cocktails too. Switching the ritual instead of ditching the ritual is so much easier. Stay in high spirits, keep a clear mind, head to mondaydistillery.com for more. Are you sick of feeling controlled by alcohol? Do you want to drink less? Do you wake up on a Sunday morning feeling really anxious and full of regret? I'm Danny Carr and welcome to my podcast, How I Quit Alcohol. Hi and welcome back to How I Quit Alcohol. Today in the Zoom room, I am so super excited. I'm a little bit nervous to be interviewing the gorgeous Maz Compton today. Maz is a radio host on Maz and Maddie on the Hit Network. She also has a podcast called The Last Drinks Podcast, which has been hugely popular. And she's also just authored a book called Last Drinks, which we'll delve into and, and chat about as well today. But Maz, how are you? Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Danny. I'm great. I'm so great. Thanks for having me on your podcast. I love talking about sobriety and sharing my story. So I appreciate your time. Awesome. Thank you so much. How long have you been sober for, Maz? Okay. So as of this recording, we're clocking up eight and a half years. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. 
Eight yeah. and a half years. That's fantastic. So tell us a little bit about your backstory, how you, like, tell us about your first drinks, then we'll get into your last drinks, but tell us about yeah your first drinks. When did you get started? Yeah, look, I think like most people my age, it was like the mid nineties when I was an early teenager and it just was inevitable that I was going to get wasted at a party. It was just a matter of whose party in whose backyard. And I chose the after party for the Wiz musical at Gemma Cormack's house to be my moment. I didn't really know, I didn't understand alcohol. All I knew was that it was something rebellious because my parents had said, don't drink. And when they were sort of prepping us for the after party, Mrs. Barnes, the director of the musical had said, don't drink. And my gymnastics coach had said, don't drink. And so, of course, I drank and I drank rum straight out of the bottle. I was tiny, like I'm five foot one and a half now as a full grown adult. So imagine 15 year old me. So tiny, no, nothing for dinner, just pure rum into my system. And I just basically ended up passed out at this party. And my friend Amy called her mum to come and get me. Her mum, thank God, took me back to her house, tried to sober me up before calling my parents. Love Amy's mum. To my parents, oh, your daughter's not feeling very well. (laughs) It was obvious what had happened. And the next day, I remember feeling really humiliated. I remember feeling really ashamed. I was in so much trouble with my parents for embarrassing them and myself. And that didn't deter me from doing it all again a few weeks later because it's kind of just what we did. And there was no conversation about what I was putting into my body, why it had given me that physical reaction and how to maybe, I don't know, educate myself better about moderating or not drinking to excess, not binge drinking. And all none of those conversations were had. It was like, that was my horrendous start. And then I just sort of drank a little bit less and had a little bit more soft drink with the next glass of rum kind of vibe. And so that was being a teenager where I grew up and it was really normal. And I I think I used to do things like, I definitely didn't get myself into that state again, but I remember thinking like after a weekend, we'd get to the school on Monday and it's like, oh, well, so-and-so ended up in an ambulance. At least I wasn't that bad. Mm-hmm. So therefore it's okay. And that's that's the justification that I gave myself for my entire drinking career. And I call it a career because mm. I did it so much. I got to a point where I wasn't really sick anymore. I didn't really get hangovers anymore. Like I learned to manage what I could drink and how to sober myself up with like fries at three in the morning or whatever, just to kind of survive. Like I learned how to manage being somebody who had a high functioning drinking issue well into my early 30s, which is when you think age 15, I quit when I was, I was sober on my 35th birthday. So call it nearly 20 years of drinking behavior. My stint in sobriety doesn't feel like it's that long when you compare it to how many weekends I wasted being drunk. Mm -hmm. there's so much energy into that management of your drinking it's like you say like making sure you have the cup of tea and have the fries and soak it all up what was the negative impacts for you because it sounds like if you were managing it yeah yeah. it's really interesting Danny because 
I think it just became who I was. And so I can't say, oh, well, like my career ended up in the toilet because I drank too much. Like I was so successful. I managed to always pretty much get up and go to the gym or do some sort of physical exercise. I was always very fit and healthy considering I wasn't eating really great food and I was drinking a lot, but I maintained like a really kind of good level of health and fitness. And so it didn't have this like really profoundly negative impact where I went, oh my God, I've got to stop until the year 2014 when a few things happened and it wasn't, they weren't incidents necessarily. It was just thoughts in my head, really busy up here. And I remember in 2014 saying to myself, it was my friend's birthday party. And I said to myself, I'm like, I don't even want to go because I don't want to drink. And that stopped me in my tracks. And I was like, how is it that at 34 years old, I feel like I cannot go to a friend's party and not drink alcohol? Or if I don't want to drink alcohol, I cannot go to my friend's party. That felt off to me. And that was really the very start of my sober curiosity where I started asking myself questions about my drinking behavior. And I realized I'd gotten into this pattern where I was like, I don't want to drink but then I would go and drink and then I'd feel bad for drinking. So then I just drink to feel good for a minute and forget about the bad feeling. And I was in this very realistic blame shame cycle for that whole year whilst I was fumbling around with the idea of like, do I stop drinking? If I stop, does that mean I'm an alcoholic? Does this mean I'm problematic? Am I that out of control? Do I need to hit a rock bottom? Did I hit, you know, so many questions really. It was Pandora's box when I had that sort of line in the sand moment where I was like, oh, my friend's party. I don't want to go because I don't want to drink anymore. Those wake up calls where you start to realize and you start to ask those questions of yourself, like what's it actually doing for me anyway? And, and just noticing, like noticing how, how we don't kind of, I remember going through that as well, like having these moments of like, I don't even want to, but it was so expected of me to drink that that's kind of what I did. Talk to me a bit about what you were doing for your job. Cause I know you're ex MTV host. Yeah. So much like my friend Lissy Turner, who was Triple J host, Mel yeah. in the Morning, she was like, it was expected. It was also part of the job, the people you're hanging out with. Totally. It was, yeah. I say this, I don't blame the industry for what turned mm. into a dependence for me at all, but it didn't help <laughs> that mm. there was alcohol at every event. If your glass was empty and you were holding it, a waiter would fill it up. And it was parties and expectation that winning combination was part of what I did. And I worked at MTV for a long time. And then I got sort of into the radio industry and it's the same thing. It's just, we always joke that the pay was terrible, but the booze was free. So you drank your salary in alcohol and it's not too far from the truth. So I think mm. because I never had the opportunity to question it, because I never had a mentor to look up to who was sober. I think the, the people that I was running around with at one point in my life were kind of like my idols. And then all of a sudden I was kicking around with them, but then we were just all drinking and there was never a question of maybe this isn't our best selves. Maybe this isn't mm. the best uh, way to do our career or our industry or our jobs, but there was no other way shown to me. So mm. I think I just got into that slipstream. And once I was in that slipstream, it really took hold and it became a part of my identity. So even by 2014, when I'd sort of pivoted from TV to radio really successfully and 
I was hosting the National Drive Show and my face was on billboards and I had this epic ironclad contract. I was drinking all the time. And so life on paper looked really good, but internally not super happy, not comfortable Mm. enough in my own skin to just sit with myself and my feelings, had Mm. to sort of compound them, repress them, suppress them, and not do the work on figuring out who Maz was without booze, which is what I did the following year in sobriety. It's always the big question, isn't it? Like figuring out who we are without it, this thing that's kind of defined us and sort of made us who we are in to some degrees for so long. How much were you drinking at the end? Um, by 2014, like probably a bottle of wine at least a night. So my kind of routine, I'm a real routine person. Like I thrive in routine and that worked for alcohol consumption as well. So at that time, I would kind of get up in the morning, go to the gym, maybe a walk, whatever. I was living in Melbourne at the time. I'd like cruise into work mid-morning. I'd be at work pretty much all day until 6 p.m. I would finish the show, get in my car, drive home, go via the bottle shop get a bottle of Savion Blanc and a Pinot just in case, and then go home and drink. And it didn't feel problematic at all. It just felt like I deserve this. This is how I relax. My life was so micromanaged and my schedule was so busy that any time I got to myself, I was like, here's what I can control. I'm going to have a drink of wine because I deserve it. So that was kind of my routine if I wasn't going out, but then I was out a lot as well. So a lot of the time I would have to go straight from work, do a quick change, go to an event. I'd be getting an Uber Black Bear on the company. I'd be drinking wine at the party or the event or whatever it was, and I'd be getting an Uber home and waking up in the morning super dusty and then hit the go button and away we go. So I think quantity-wise, it's funny because sometimes I say, oh, a bottle or so a night, and some people are shocked at that. They're like, oh my God, like that's a lot of wine. And I'm a little person. And then other people are like, only one bottle? <laughs> so it's still like mixed mm-hmm. response on, I think, where other people are up to with their drinking behavior as to what feels too much or not enough and what is shocking in which other way. But what I have realized is that and for anybody who's sober curious listening to this going, oh, well, I'm not drinking a whole bottle of wine a night, so maybe I don't need to stop, you've got to figure it out for yourself. And the only way you can figure out your relationship with alcohol is to have a complete break for an extended season of life and figure out how your life functions without booze in it in order to then maybe come back to it and moderate if that's going to work for you or really go down the road to sobriety. But you can't just go, oh, well, Maz was drinking a whole bottle and I'm only drinking half. So therefore I don't have it. It's not about that. It's about, are you comfortable with your relationship with alcohol? And if you're listening to this, you're probably not. Yeah, most exactly. Most likely. So drinking to me, that's, that's a fair bit, a bottle a night and maybe some. So what was it doing for you? What was the alcohol giving you? I think The main thing it gave me was a sense of control. And I can only say that now eight and a half years sober and I've done a lot of therapy and I've done a lot of sort of work on figuring out why I drank in the first place. And I think one of the things, because as I mentioned, my job was so crazy busy and I was so micromanaged and I was being told who to interview, what to wear, where to go, when to be. 
it was a sense of control. It was the one thing I could control. I could go to a bottle shop, I could buy a bottle of wine and I could drink the whole damn thing if I wanted to. And there was nobody there to tell me whether that was a good idea or a bad idea. It was, it, it, that was my choice. So part of it was feeling a sense of control in a very out of control, not even season. Like this was like a decade of my life that had really been like that. And then the other thing, I really think it helped me just avoid some big stuff that I didn't want to deal with. Going way back to 2010 when I went through a divorce, right up to, you know, just some big stuff that happened in my world that I just didn't have the tools to cope with. So it was, I call it the multi-tool of coping. I think the purpose it served me was I am coping. And what we need to do is actually not cope with our situation. We need to deal with our stuff. So for me, it was I am dealing with stuff avoidant (laughs) and this is the tool that will help me cope with all of those big feelings that I don't want to deal with just now. But I can only say that to you because I have done, as I said, a lot of time on a blue couch with a lot of Kleenex doing some really big stuff about figuring out who I am, figuring out how that ended up being my story, getting okay with this story and kind of trying to become the best and sober version of myself. It's interesting how you how you say that it was the way that you can control something in your life, but then alcohol usually we end up so out of control with it. How did you feel like, say, the next morning after, you know, you've done another bottle of wine? Were you ever thinking, oh, this has got to stop? This isn't good? We did you feel out of control at all with it? I think I was getting bored with myself. So it was mundane, it was the same because I wasn't really going out too much unless I really had to go out. If I had the choice, I was staying in and drinking by myself. And that's kind of a boring story. So yeah, I didn't feel out of control in the sense that like we see in the movies and we're like on a plane in Bridesmaids. It's not like that out of control. I felt my sense of grip start to loosen a bit on my situation. And I did have a few thoughts of like, if this keeps going this way, I don't know that this is going to work out too well. So I might need to try something a little bit different. So it felt out of control in a different way, if that makes sense. It's interesting, isn't it? Just seeing it from that different perspective too of like, okay, yeah, this is not taking me where I want it to take me anymore. And yeah. So tell me when you were getting to the point where like, okay, this is time to stop. I'm getting bored with myself. I want Mm -hmm. something new. Was there anything that was holding you back? Was there anything that was worrying you about stopping? Was there anything that you feared about the unknown of stopping drinking? Yeah, totally. Like the biggest thing for me was I I legitimately thought I would die of boredom because I could not think of what people did on a weekend without drinking. So the first thing was like, what am I going to do instead? Because all I do all, and this is just weekends, all I do all weekend is like hang out with my friends and drink. So like, what else is there? And then I really did think I was going to be judged really heavily by peers in my industry. And at the time I had a pretty big deal media job and I was in the public eye. So I was concerned about what if there's a headline saying that I was a problematic drink? And I worried about the things that I couldn't control. How funny. Because you can't control what people think or say. 
You can only control how you respond to it. So I definitely had like very real fears uh, going into sobriety, but I really had to just sit down and weigh up. You can either, and uh, one other thing that I think I've learned just over the years in general is that like as a major overthinker and huge a person who catastrophizes really crazy situations in my brain a lot is that 99% of the time, the worst thing that I'm thinking in my head won't happen. So I was like, these are the two worst things. I will physically die of boredom, probably not going to happen. And people might think that you had a drinking problem. And then I had to land on who cares. And so I think once I'd sort of answered those two questions for myself, using a little bit of my upstairs brain and my logic and reasoning, I was like, I'm going to make a choice for my health, regardless of what people think and regardless of how bored I might be for a few weekends. But I I really want to figure this out. Those two fears probably stopped me quitting five years before. Yeah, well, it's that's what holds so many people back too. It's just that fear of the unknown. That one, I'm going to be boring. It's huge for people. It's absolutely so huge. huge. But yeah. it's always the anticipation. Like I kind of liken it to if you get on like a diving board at a pool and you're just absolutely crapping yourself for ages and it's like once you jump, it's never bad. It's never that bad. So long as there's water in the bottom of that pool, you're fine. But it's the anticipation that we torture ourselves in. And I feel like I was standing on the top of that diving board for almost a decade of my life being too scared to put my health and wellness actually front and center in my life because I was worried about what people were going to say about the splash. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. I think we stand on that board for way too many years. And then when you actually dive in, you're like, oh, this is great down here. Like, this is awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And often it's so well received. That's always what I see with people and and myself, that you get the, the odd person who's a bit disgruntled that you're not their drinking buddy anymore. But mostly, most people are like, they're on board with you. Like, they're like, I get it. Yeah. Tell me how, tell me more. Did you feel like you were judged? How how was it received with your friends and your your peers? Yeah, so friends, no. Friends were super on board and just so encouraging and supportive and wonderful. And, and I kind of, I was pretty clear with my mates. I was like, girls, sorry, not catching up for drinks anymore, catching up for brunch and breakfast. So if you want to hang out, let's do it. I just really, I changed my social calendar to socializing during the day. And doing stuff where it would be weird to drink, right? So like we'd go and have a picnic at lunch and it is a bit weird if you open a bottle of wine at midday in a park surrounded by families. So I'd just make sure that I was always doing stuff where like drinking really wasn't an option and it wouldn't come up a lot. So I thought that was smart of me to kind of safeguard it a little bit that way. I had some really strong reactions from a few people that I worked with and people who I wasn't super close to but like worked with in the industry. and. That was pretty tough. I, it felt like those people who were kind of like not in the inner sanctum of my friendship circle, but like you knew through association and because we were always catching up for drinks at work, they were just waiting for me to fail. It's like their initial reaction was like, well, call me when you've finished whatever this weird phase is that you're going through and let us know when we can go and have a drink. Like there was no sense of encouragement or understanding. So it was Yeah, it was very obvious to me as well. Like the people that were closest to me were very supportive and people who were kind of outside of that either didn't have an opinion of it, but it felt like they were just 
waiting for me to kind of trip up or get over whatever I needed to get over and then just start drinking and be normal again. Mm, yeah. Eight years down the track or, or once you got started, like how did you handle the boredom? Was there boredom? Are you bored or is life so much better? <laughs> oh my God. I want my life to be boring. <laughs> I would take one oh, day. I agree with that. Oh my God. No, surprisingly, I wasn't bored. I found new stuff to do. So those early few months, I definitely made lots and lots of plans. So I would go and do walks. And at the time I was just in a relationship with no kids. So it was, we just had all the time in the world. So I just made plans and I started doing new stuff and cool stuff and stuff that I'd wanted to try. And I went down deep dives on YouTube and I binged the minimalists and then I threw all my stuff out. Like I just did stuff that I would not normally have time to do because I was too busy at the pub solving the world's problems instead of solving my own. And then I would kind of try stuff out and then really latch on to things. So one thing I latched on to was my gym community. So I really ramped up the gym. I joined an F45 gym. And in fact, I ended up opening my own gym a year later and just building a community of like-minded people around the ethos of team training and life-changing and fitness and health and wellness just felt so right at the time. So that was somewhere that I really spent a lot of time. And it was... Is that still open? Is that still Where is it? So we own the gym in Avalon. It's called F45 Avalon. And we've had it open since April 2016. And yeah, it, it... that was definitely a big one for me was just getting immersed into a new community, basically. And then, you know, when you're running a business, you're not bored either. So (laughs) there was also that, but just, I think I became adventurous. I would find things for me to try, or I would be like, what about this? Why don't I start making sourdough? This was pre-pandemic and let's mix it up and change it up. And I just felt like my life just got so much more colorful and exciting And then I think that that's a self-fulfilling prophecy because then almost like a year in, I'm like, I don't even have time to drink. Like I can't go back to drinking because there's Mm -hmm. no time. I've got a business to run and I was right. sourdough to make. Yeah, I've got so many loaves of bread to bake for the neighbours. So it Mm. was a self-fulfilling prophecy, but I was really targeted about it. So I didn't just wake up on day one of sobriety and twiddle my thumbs and go, oh my God, I just need to get through the day without a drink. I really planned it and I planned it hard so that I didn't have those moments as often as I thought I might because I knew that that would be the moment where I would be tempted to drink. Is If I found myself a little bit bored, that would be a trigger for me. So I just tried to keep busy. And the other thing that I noticed, Danny, is I got really tired for that first little bit in sobriety where I would get to 8 p.m. and be like, I'm out. I'm so exhausted. And I think it took six months for my circadian rhythm to just normalize and reestablish a baseline. So that takes time because my body finally wasn't processing toxic liquid anymore. Mm -hmm. And so it takes a while for your body and your brain and all of your systems, this complex being that we are, to really reset and recalibrate. And so I gave myself permission to sleep. And I think that that was a really smart thing to do as well. 
Yeah, it's really healing. And it does, it takes time for our dopamine to reset, for our REM sleep to reset and to catch back up again. The body needs to heal. So it's beautiful to give yourself that permission to go, okay, I'm just going to listen to my body now. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's amazing. And so Maz, tell me about the very start, like day one. Yeah. Well, day one's easy because you usually- (laughs) Yeah, that's so true. (laughs) <laughs> well, I was hungover. So it was the yeah. 1st of January, 2015. I had a massive New Year's Eve. I knew I was quitting drinking on the 1st of January. So it was easy because I was hungover. So I spent all day in an air-conditioned hotel room and ate pizza. It was epic. Um, the, <laughs> next day, the next day was kind of similar. I just watched a bunch of Netflix and then it got really hard. <laughs> yeah. When like, did you okay. get the like, oh, because yeah. I know with Ash and I, it was like a couple of weeks and I'm like, oh, fuck, what have I yeah. done? Look. I, I think one thing, what have I done? It was hard when I was around my work gang because they were my drinking buddies as well. And so that was where I found it most tricky was in social situations. When I like, because I think I had this idea of keeping busy and trying new things, being by myself or with my boyfriend at the time wasn't triggering at all. But being in the work environment was, I really had to mentally prepare for going into those social situations and that was when I felt that was when I felt super awkward I would be standing at a party and everyone's drinking and I'm just there with a kombucha and feeling really judged feeling like I'm not having enough fun and feeling not a like I wasn't on the same page as everyone there mm-hmm. purely because I wasn't drinking so I remember feeling really awkward, but then I also challenged myself to just sit in a bit of uncomfortability and suck it up. And I, Mm. so I did. And as much as I didn't know what to do with my hands or if I'd eaten too much cheese, I just kind of got through those first few months of social and I tapped out early and I always had an excuse to go home. So as soon as that sun was coming down, I'm like, yeah, I'm going for a swim in the morning or I've got a gym class to go to or whatever Mm. it was so Mm -hmm. um it was really tricky absolutely but I feel like every time I got home and I was sober I was like yes like I was so proud of myself yeah yeah you can do this and I wasn't eventually I wasn't standing in the corner white knuckling it going oh my god am I gonna drink tonight I was just I became more and more comfortable in my sobriety and I had a bit of snapback and a bit of sass at one point because I, I don't know, I was just kind of over people really like hounding me about why I was sober. But I think on the whole, I managed to deflect really well and kind of, like I said, just go to the party, be there, be in the moment and then see you later and kind of enjoy the rest of my weekend. So mm. it is hard. It's not hard now because I forget that alcohol even exists. Honestly, it is not even anywhere on my radar. It's not, I just don't even think about it. But definitely that took years to get to that point where I'm so solid in my sobriety. I think it takes a lot of rewiring of our neural pathways. And like I said, I drank for nearly 20 years. It's a lot Mm -hmm. of patterns and programs that you kind of have to reassess and recalibrate in your brain. Yeah, I think it's so important all of this that you're saying and having a plan is so important, especially in early sobriety, like okay, planning for the roadblocks and knowing okay, 
these are potential triggers, like with you as the potential boredom or with work stuff and just preparing for them and having your exit strategy is so important and just feeling the discomfort. So for people listening, just know that this is all really normal and it's really normal to get to a party. I know it was for me where I just feel, fuck, I'm so fucking uncomfortable right now and just <laughs> yeah. suck it up. Yep. Just suck, yeah, it up. suck it up. Get the fuck out of there or do the dishes or do something to keep you busy and then get out of there and, and exit strategy. And I think what you said too, like saying to people, I've got to get up early in the morning for something and people yeah. can't fuck with that too much. And then yeah. you're on your way. And like you say, when you get home and you're like, yes, and you celebrate that win is, is absolutely, and it just reinforces it for you as well. And one um, thing also just on that, Danny, like I remember being at this party and having this like conversation in my head of like, I'm sober and I just feel a bit out of it. And, you know, everyone else is doing shots. And then I was like, you are choosing to be here. Like you are a grown adult woman responsible for her own choices. So like either be here or go home. Like we don't give ourselves permission to not be places. And that's mm. one thing that I love. I love saying no. I love it. Somebody mm. asked me to go somewhere and I'm like, no, nah, that is not going to work for me. Sorry. And I never used to say no because I'm like a awesome. hardcore people pleaser. Mm. And what I've learned especially in sobriety is like it's okay not to go rather than go and beat yourself up or put yourself in a risky situation if you're new to sobriety like don't gamble at all on just people pleasing just don't be there and Mm. I think then you can be like oh well I am choosing to be here so I'm gonna have a good time or I'm gonna go home or you can just not go next time and find something else to do that you actually want to do and enjoy doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's so important. The other really important thing that you said, which is so important for everyone, especially in early sobriety to realize it does get better. I remember at the start, just so uncomfortable. And all I could think about was booze. And now I can go to gigs and festivals and all the things and do it all. And I I just don't think about it. Same as you, like I do, it doesn't even, yeah. I feel like people, when they're in their early trenches and they feel like, I'm never going to stop obsessing about this, we can promise you together that that does, it does. It does let go. And also something I found too is there's a novelty wears off dip as well. So as much as early sobriety can be really challenging because you do feel like all you keep thinking about is, oh, my God, am I going to screw up? Mm-hmm. Or like, oh, my God, I can't drink. I'm not drinking. I've got to be sober. When that sort of dissipates, it's fun because it's a novelty because you are doing it and you are succeeding and you're on this sobriety journey and it's cool. And at about the 10-month mark, the novelty wears off and it becomes really challenging again. And that's mm. when you have to like build in that next step of sobriety of like, okay, what are your goals right now? And that's mm. when you probably need to have those really tough conversations, which people don't like having of like, well, am I going to drink again or not? And for some people, it works to say that they're not because it's platonic for them and it's just going to implode their life if they drink again. And for other people, it's maybe easier to just to reconcile with, well, I'm just not going to drink until it's been 12 months and then I'll reassess. And then you get to 12 months and you're like, yeah, you know what, maybe I'll go till my birthday or another six months or what have you. And you sort of do those little baby step milestones. But either way, like I really feel like I want to communicate that there is a dip and like the shine wears off and it peaks and troughs definitely mm. swings and roundabouts. And then also sobriety is really hard when things don't go your way. So sobriety mm. can be really easy when 
your boyfriend's being lovely and when your kids are listening to you and when your boss is giving you a pay rise. And sobriety can be really hard when your husband's being an absolute dick, when your kids are throwing food in your face and when your boss has told you that your deadline's two days earlier. Like that's when it gets harder. But the encouragement I have for people is even if you're having like the world's worst day, Drinking alcohol isn't going to make it any better. All drinking alcohol Mm. will do is stop your brain from processing the fact that it's a really hard day Mm. and nothing will change the next day. It will just be hard again. So if you can do it Mm. sober, I think you've got more capacity to manage it better. Yeah, yeah. And it's just keeping it simple too. Like one thing my husband always says is like, just decide it's easy. And I know that sounds so simplistic, but it's so true. He just like. Oh, good. Such great advice. Mm. This is easy. As my four-year-old says, it's easy peasy, mum. It's easy. (laughs) I know some people want to smash Ash in the face when he said that, but it's true. You can suffer it or not suffer it. And the mind hack that because that's you. The more you think that, the easy that's the manifestation of it all, right? Like as you think you become. If you're thinking that this is so tricky and you're gonna fail, it is gonna be so tricky and you will fail. But if Mm. you think you can do it, then you can probably do it. Absolutely. So you talked earlier about partying with your idols and being around your idols and and how that can really kind of, not to blame them, but they're who we look to and how we kind of think, oh, I want to aspire to be like that. What's Mm. great now is that in the kind of sober space and in this community, there's people like yourself and other musicians and or just people in general just speaking out and saying, hey, this is what I'm choosing to do. And there's no shame in it. It's actually really fucking cool. It's good on the other side. How do you feel like that, like you speaking out and other people like yourself that are well-known, do you feel like that's going to have a flow-on effect for other people to give people someone to look up to and to go, hey, if they can do it, I can do it? Yeah, I think there's so much more communication about sobriety and what it actually means. I think even when I stopped drinking eight and a half years ago, sobriety meant that clearly you had an out-of-control alcohol problem. And it's Mm. not that black and white. There's a really big gray area with drinking. And so I think it's only going to make it easier for people to have a conversation with themselves about their relationship with alcohol. And the other great thing is that it means that there's so many more tools available. Like there's podcasts like this, there's books, there's websites, there's pamphlets, there's community groups. There is so many resources that people can tap into. There's Reddit threads where you can join in camaraderie and sobriety. And it's so much easier with a buddy or a teammate than it is when you go it alone. So I think it's positive. And it's surprising how many stories there are floating out there in the cosmos of people who are like, hey, used to drink a bit. Now I think it's a dumb idea, not drinking anymore. And it feels like not as extreme as what quitting drinking feels like for a lot of people. Do you know Mm. what I'm saying? So like, Mm. I think for some people, it's like, oh my God, you quit drinking. You must've been like a raging alcoholic. And it's like, well, First of all, the term alcoholic is so outdated and not helpful. And second of all, no, there was nothing raging about it. I was so under the radar, (laughs) but (laughs) it didn't work for me. And I think Mm. the more we hear about people getting to a point in their lives where they figured out that alcohol didn't work for them, the easier it becomes to just let it go. Absolutely. And you just do find more and more, I know with us when we go to industry stuff or, or to big shows or festivals, hardly anyone's drinking these days. It just seems to be. It's yeah, odd, I think actually. There's lots of alcohol-free options, which I yeah. think is 
been really handy. I think there's mm-hmm. a whole boom of an industry that didn't exist a decade ago for sure. And it just means you can go and hold a cold can or a glass bottle of something fizzy and still feel like you're being social without mm. having to consume any alcohol, which is awesome. And I, I definitely have noticed that it's not, I mean, 10 years ago or you know, around the time that I stopped drinking, you couldn't get a non-alcoholic drink. Yeah. You would have to have like a lemonade with a straw and a pink umbrella in it. Now it's you can get anything without alcohol in it. It's awesome. Mm, that's amazing, isn't it? Do you do the non-alc wines and beers? Do you know what? I actually don't. So yeah. I, and it's not because I think it would be a thing for me. I just think it came along too late in my sobriety journey. And mm. I'm just so, I'm so fine on like a water with some lemon or like I said, a kombucha or like I've been at a bar and ordered an English breakfast tea and people are like, <laughs> what are you doing? I'm like, I just feel like a warm drink. Yeah. It's cold outside. And so yeah. I'm so fine with that. And I think, look, I may dig in and dip in to the non-out world at some point, but for me, I haven't, it doesn't really satisfy. It doesn't, there's no thirst there to be quenched. And so I just feel like I'm just so okay with just having water that I don't need to dip in, if that makes sense. And I think that's because I've trained myself to just be okay with what the options were back when I stopped drinking, which was (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now that's great. When you first quit, did you have an amount of time that you were going to do it for? Or it was like, this is it? 31 days. Ah. Yeah, I did. I was like, I'm going to do January alcohol free. That was my, that was it. 31 days. And I literally haven't had a drink for eight and a half years. Wow. But what happened in that time is I really had this paradigm shift at about day 23-ish where I honestly woke up and I felt like someone had switched a light on in my brain. And I was like, it was really matrixy. I was like, what is this world? <laughs> and everything felt very clear. I, I felt very sharp. And I kind of walked around all day feeling like I was kind of tripping a bit. And then I realized that that's clarity and that's actually how we're supposed to live. And I was just so used to being dull that I had no idea what clarity could be for me. So I think from that point, I was like, it switched from I'm not drinking for 31 days to like, geez, I wonder how much better I'll feel in three months from now. And then it became this like the forward progression of sobriety. So, and then it was like, I'll get to my birthday. And then I was like, I'll get to the middle of the year. And then I'd done a year and then, and then it kind of snowballed in a way from there, I guess. Amazing. Tell me about the podcast. So I know with this podcast, it happened very organically. It was just like all these people going, fuck, if you two can do it. I mean, how the fuck did you two do it? So I was just like, oh God, I'm sick of answering this question. So I put out this podcast. How did yours come about? Mine came about because I just get, I got asked so many times, like, how, how are you sober? How did you do it? And I just also know that my story connects with so many people, but there are so many other stories out there. So if my story can connect with people, surely somebody else's can connect with either that person or another person. And so Mm -hmm. I came up with the idea of last drinks because for me, that was the line in the sand in my life. So like the day I had my last drink was the start of my sobriety and the best season of my life. And so I felt that that's quite applicable to anyone who is sober. So that was the idea to start each conversation with the last drink and then kind of cycle back and forth between the story of what led up to that point in your life and what have you learned since? Amazing. 
That's so awesome. And the book, congratulations on this book that's out now. That's so fantastic. And I know within our grads group, there's been people talking about it. And tell tell us a bit about the book. Again, like the book is sort of that next sort of iteration of the podcast, really. It was sort of birthed out of the stories from the podcast and wanting to give people a really practical guide. And what I've found is that education and knowledge is power. So it's got some science-backed information in there with experts explaining what alcohol does to our bodies and our brains and our sleep, how sobriety looks on a whole bunch of different people. And then it's a curated sort of 30-day plan, which really is the 30 days that I did when I was fumbling around um, trying to figure it out. Like I said, I gave myself loads of things to do. And that 30 days is really like jam-packed with curating a sober toolkit and just exploring stuff and discovering stuff and giving people that experience that I had for them to then maybe keep going with it after the 30 days. Amazing. That's so fantastic. And it's like putting a book together. It's no easy task. Ash and I have been writing our book now for two years or three years or something, and it's hard. I'm just like, it's hard to get that thing out there. So well done and congratulations. And can people get that everywhere? Is is it? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All good bookstores or online, anywhere you buy books or just through mazcompton.com, which is my website. Well, it sounds like it's going to be an amazing tool for people to, yeah, who just want to, especially for those who are curious and just want to, okay, what can I do here? What worked for Maz? And this is how we, I mean, all we can do is share our knowledge and say, well, this is what I did, worked for me and and give it a go and and see how, how you feel at the end of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Maz Compton, thank you so much for your time. I've got about a gazillion other questions I want to ask you, but I'll have to say that for another day. But one question I'd love to ask you is if you could go back and speak to your 15-year-old self, what would you say to her? This is going to sound crazy, but I'd say don't change a thing. Because without her, we don't get this story. We don't get this book. We don't get this podcast. We don't get the sobriety story that I have. So If I go back and tell that little girl to do things differently, I don't know how many lives I'd be empowering right now. So I know that sounds a bit weird because most people are like, oh, I'd go back and say, but I'm like, no, she's perfect because she led me to me and I needed to find this me through her. That's amazing. So well said. And you just don't know, like for those of us who are like stuck in the shame cycle, you don't know what your story, you don't know what impact that's going to have. Even if you don't have a podcast or a book yet, it doesn't matter how it looks. It could just be talking to someone in the supermarket. You just don't know the impact you're going to have on so many lives. And so I think, as you know, you already are having a huge impact on people. It's amazing what you do. And we're just so lucky to have you in this space. It's awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. It's so nice to meet you. (laughs) Yeah, I know you too. I'm, I'm so stoked. Thank you. Thanks, Maz. I'll see you soon. Thanks. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.